in Ephesians 6. Paul has just talked about the armor of God, and now he's just putting, putting the final little touches on this letter to this group of Christians who are trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. In verse 19, he says, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Remember, Paul's under house arrest at this point. Pray that I may declare the gospel fearlessly as I should. Tychetus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. And I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Now, if you're reading through the book of Ephesians, you might be tempted to kind of just gloss over this final section because the armor of God section gets so much press within churches and is quoted all the time, and it kind of feels maybe like the, the, um, the climactic end, and that should be kind of the mic drop to end Ephesians, but the Spirit through Paul adds this tiny little section, and there are some really powerful treasures buried here if we do the work of really looking at what's happening. Verse 19, Paul says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So this letter has all, to this point, all been about Paul strengthening the Ephesian church to know what they have in Christ, to live that out, And he ends his letter by saying, but I want you to remember me too. Will you pray for me? And specifically, when I have opportunity to share the gospel, the gospel shorthand, it's a word that comes, uh, that means translated good news. It doesn't just mean like happy, positive thoughts. It's the gospel of the kingdom or the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God has done something very specific to rescue and redeem us and to give us new life and a purpose through Jesus' incarnation. God has come as a human being. He's died on the cross and has been resurrected, dealing with the fundamental problem of human sin. Resurrection opening up those who receive Christ as their Lord and Savior to move out into life and then into an eternity with a new hope and purpose. Paul says, pray that when I have opportunities to share this gospel with people, that I would do it fearlessly. And so one thing that I would say is please be praying for your pastors and the leaders within your churches. Because I would say we need it. I know I need it. The temptations to pastor out of fear are many. The temptations to lead in your own strength as a pastor are many. The temptations to compromise a faithful witness as a pastor so other people think well of you, so that you're seen as relevant, so that you avoid um, dents to your reputation, public smearing, so that you can be accepted, so that you can be popular, not just within your church, but maybe within the community. Those temptations are always clamoring for attention, I think, in a pastor's heart. And so please be praying uh, for Rick and I and all the leaders at this church and that are Junction and Balfour churches and the Church of Nelson that our spiritual leaders would be 
operating, not with the fear of man in mind, what are people going to think, how do I massage them, you know, kind of taking the winds, always kind of operating out of a, oh, is this okay to say, say it in this way? But we are graciously, but also confidently operating out of the fear of God, that we preach and teach in order to please and honor God, not people. Then in verse 21 and 22, Paul says, Tychetus, who's a dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, and, and Tychetus shows up in a few little tiny micro-mentions throughout the New Testament, but it's someone who was a ministry companion with Paul, and he was kind of like a, a gopher. He would go between different places and, and bring good news and bring encouragement, but he was sort of part of this ministry team of Paul's that did, doesn't get a lot of press in the New Testament, but he's seen by God, and Paul's like, I'm sending Tychetus to you because I want him to report on how we're doing to you, and I want him to encourage you. He says, that's why I'm sending him, that you can know how we are and that he may encourage you. Now, again, this is one of those ones that you can read it and be like, okay, whatever, move on. Don't miss what the, um, what's kind of hidden in plain sight here. Paul has written a letter to the church in Ephesus saying, by the way, I'm going to send you someone so that I can update you and encourage you. but he just wrote a letter. So why not just update them in the letter and isn't the letter enough to encourage them? It's a lot of time, energy, and in different ways, money to send a person. It's much more expeditious to just use a letter. And again, I think what's hidden in plain sight is the truth that when it comes to really key important relationships in our life, Letters can be great. Emails can be totally cool. Texts can be really fun. But none of those things are an appropriate substitute for face-to-face connection with people who really, really mean a lot to us. It's very different receiving an email or a text of encouragement and having someone look you in the eyes and put their hands on your shoulder and pray for you and saying, you got this. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Let's pray this together. I'm, you know, this is awesome. And again, it's not that one's bad, but there very clearly here is a nod to a biblical theme. And that is the theme that with real friendship and deep relationship, we should, how, however difficult and challenging and costly it is, try and prioritize face-to-face communication. And obviously, <laughs> when Paul is writing this letter, he's not even thinking about the possibility that you could be in tremendous contact via screens to other people, you know, 2,000 years later. So I think this is even more relevant to us when it becomes so easy to deprioritize the face-to-face and to allow texts and emails to just kind of fill in like, oh, we're in like greater connection than I've ever been in my life. But it's different than getting face-to-face. There's no substitute for face-to-face presence. In Exodus 33, when Moses is having these interfaces with God, it says that the Lord would speak to Moses face-to-face as one speaks to a friend. Real friendship is held, is created and sustained by face-to-face connections, real presence. So that's why God doesn't just stop in giving Israel his law. Here are my commands, here are the truths, here's my, in one sense, love letter to you and how to live. God's ultimate revelation is himself. He comes literally face to face. The word 
became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we've seen his glory. And that's the Apostle John writing about Jesus. The incarnation is a not-so-subtle clue that God's heart for deep relational connection and friendship is created and sustained by getting really close to people and by treasuring and prioritizing that face-to-face connection. And I know in today's day and age, that's very challenging because of the complexity and um, layered and multi-responsibility facets of our lives. But I still think there's an important takeaway here in that we can at least ask ourselves, am I prioritizing face-to-face connections with those who are important to me? Or have I begun to lean and rely on the crutch of technology maybe a little bit too much? I was thinking about how important it was to Paul to send someone to encourage him, or sorry, send someone to encourage the church in Ephesus. And as often seems to happen, happen, two nights later, I had a meeting with the missions committee. And without talking about any of this, someone at the committee said, hey, you know what would be cool? I wonder if this is a year where we could send like a short-term missions trip to Argentina to encourage our long-term missionary, Colleen Nanachuk, who's there. Maybe we could do it in the spring so that any high school students who were wanting to go and we could just go and encourage her and then also just ask the covenant churches down in Argentina and say, hey, we're coming, here's this group, how can we bless you? We're not coming with an agenda, we're gonna be here for 10 days or 14 days, how could we bless you? And so today, what I want to do is I want to formally invite you to consider being a part of that trip. If we have a critical mass of people who are interested in going, to first of all, just face-to-face, update Colleen about how things are going here and encourage her, and then go and serve the covenant churches there based on however they feel like in this season of their church life, they might just say, it would just be awesome to have you come and hang out with us and build a relationship. They might say, we have a building project. We have no idea. We're in very exploratory um, well, I haven't, even, I haven't even broached this with Colleen yet, so I'm throwing it out there to say, but this is a year where we can do it. We have subsidies available to help people in terms of the fundraising and the cost. I've connected with Rick, and he said if we have critical mass, he'd be more than happy to lead the trip. So we're starting to get the scaffolding in place, but this has to be something that comes from our heart as a congregation to say, yeah, this would be really cool. Right now, there isn't like a, we need X amount of people to justify the trip. We just want to know if there's people that would be interested. What a powerful witness it would be and an amazing application of this uh, seemingly kind of obscure verse to say, yeah, we're going to send a team of six or eight or ten down to Argentina and just bless the socks off Colleen and the Covenant Churches there. So just be praying for that and then maybe as we get into, we'll keep reminding you as we get into late September, early October, maybe kind of have an information meeting of what that might look like so that we can get plans in place for fundraising and different things. But um, there was just a lot of connection points that I just saw God's hand sort of put some of these themes together and opportunities, and I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. Finally, Paul says, verse 23, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And I love that. Paul wants three things for this church. This is the climax. This is the high note. He says, I want peace for you. 
Hebrew word for shalom. It doesn't just mean like an absence of conflict. It means the full richness of life as God intended it. Kind of a harmonious integration of love for God, love for other people, self-understanding, walking into the world with a confidence that comes from knowing who you are and what God has made you for. I want that peace, that assurance to just enwrap this community. And he says, I want love with faith towards God and towards each other. And then he says, I want grace over all those who love Jesus with an undying love. That's a good place to close the book of Ephesians and a good place to close this message. Let's pray. God, for peace and love and grace, I pray that that would be sown here by your spirit in abundance and we would grow in that love and we would grow in our both willingness to prioritize and sacrifice in all the ways that are necessary in order to connect with each other more consistently face-to-face with real presence and inside of real presence. Thank you that you model that to us, that you didn't just send us a letter or send us words. You came and embodied yourself before us so that we could have real connection and really know your heart. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to be seated. One of the things that the Marvel Cinematic Universe made famous was the post-credit scene, where the movie's over and the credits roll, but no one leaves the theater, and you're waiting for 20 minutes and find out who the third operator on the second direction team boom mic was. Because eventually, if you wait long enough, there's a post-credit scene. What that scene does is it either brings into clarity a different facet of the movie that you just saw, but more likely, it gives you an indication of maybe where the next Marvel movie is going. And Ephesians, as a New Testament book, is a spiritual blockbuster. And like all good blockbusters, it has a post-credit scene. A few decades later, there's an apostle named John, and he's exiled to a place called Patmos. And he's exiled there to live out his final days. And during that time, he's given a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the book of Revelation. And it refers to the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus. And in chapter two of that revelation, the church in Ephesus is mentioned because Jesus sends seven specific letters and messages to seven churches in that area. And the first is to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus has now been in existence for somewhere between 20 to 30 years, depending on your dating of the writing of Ephesus and the book of Revelation. But they've had some momentum. I want, you to, I want to read what Jesus says to the church. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. Most people think seven stars are the pastors or leaders of the churches and the lampstands are the churches themselves. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for in my name and have not grown weary. And yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus begins his address to this church. And he says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. That's a pretty good start. I know your deeds, your good works. You work hard. You have a good work ethic, kingdom work ethic, and you persevere. You don't just give up when things are inconvenient or hard or costly. You're doing good things. And I know, he says, that you can't tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You've found them to be false. You don't just mindlessly show up on Sunday and whatever Jeff says, you're like, oh, wow, that must be gospel truth. You search the scriptures. You're willing to push back. You're willing to counter. You test those who are in authority above you. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name, even when faith wasn't easy, when it cost you something. You've continued to endure. You haven't grown weary. As a church, you haven't given up. You haven't thrown in the towel. You haven't said, yeah, now that we've kind of gone down the highway a little bit in this Christian journey, yeah, this isn't for us. I mean, think about that resume. This is a very solid, impressive church. They're full of good works. They're hardworking. They're, they endure. They're ethically upstanding. They're theologically very sharp. They're very solid. They have a sincere and focused faith. They aren't fair-weather Christians who are only in it when everything's going well. You'd almost expect Jesus to then say, after all of this, well done, good and faithful servant, fist bump, keep doing what you're doing, this is awesome. And yet he says, I hold this against you. And the against you comes from a Greek word that means this is a strike. I have this strike against you. There's something which is marring all of this other good stuff that you've accumulated. He says, you've forsaken the love you had at first. Or in some of your translations, it might say, your first love. In the Greek, it's protos agape, like a prototype, your first agape love. Not just brotherly love, not erotic sexual love, but agape love, this comprehensive love that is willing to self-sacrifice for the good of the other and to do whatever it takes to please the object of your love. He says, you've forsaken that. Not forgotten, forsaken. Now, it's really important to think about these words in the context that Jesus says them. Because the Ephesians have a sincere faith. They have lots of fruit that to the people around them, other people within the church, you would forgive them if they kind of looked around and thought, we are firing on pretty much all cylinders. Like, this is really solid. Like, obviously, we want to give God the glory, but like, we're... We're kind of a model church. But Jesus exposes something that is of such a serious nature. He says, if you don't turn from this, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. That doesn't mean take away their, their salvation. He, meant, he means you, church, are meant to be a witness to me in this community in Ephesus. But if things keep going the way they are because of this one thing, because you have forsaken your proto-agape, your first love, I will come and shut this thing down. I will shut down this church. I will remove it. Despite everything that they have going for them, Jesus himself says it doesn't make up for the fact that their hearts have shifted and now their faith is 
at the level of manifestation, super solid, very praiseworthy, but it's not coming from a place of deep and genuine devotion. It's mechanical, it's cold, and to me that's really, really scary, personally, and as a pastor, because that means that their doctrinal purity, their moral excellence, their zeal for biblical truth, their disciplined faithful service, their patient suffering under hardships and persecution, all of those things, not even in their particularities, but combined, were no substitute for having a proto-agape towards God, a first love, passionate devotion of the heart towards God. Now again, for the sake of over-repeating it, but I think, it, I think it's important to do it. Jesus is not addressing a church that started well, got sidetracked, and now he's calling them to repentance. Those are other letters that he writes. The first one to Ephesus is he's warning Christians who look and act and have found a groove in their life where they're operating on kingdom, kingdom rails, and they're like, Man, this is awesome. And maybe they think they have it all together. Maybe other churches and other people who visit Ephesus would say, I wish my church was more like the church in Ephesus. These guys are solid as a rock. But he's willing to shut the whole thing down. And what's, that, what's scary to me about that is what I think this verse, this, <laughs> this post-credit scene in the story of Ephesus teaches us. That for Jesus, you can have the most exemplary Christian witness as a church. But if it is divorced from genuine, passionate, devoted love to Jesus, Jesus kind of thinks it's worthless. I mean, he, I mean, think about what he's saying. He's literally saying, I'd rather shut the church down in Ephesus and have no lampstand in Ephesus. That would be better than a church that was sort of a church, I don't want to say a name only, because it wasn't a name only, they were sincere, but it was a church that was fundamentally disconnected from my heart. I mean, that is, that's a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard reality to kind of be like, really, Jesus? Like, really? Like, we all kind of wander and sway and kind of cool in our faith at different times in life, and, and Jesus just says, this is something that you actually need to repent of. That's strong language. But we shouldn't be surprised because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, listen, if my life had all the manifestations of the most amazing, uh, powerful expressions of kingdom of God power, but if I didn't have love, it would all be worth nothing. And that's really just the application of what Jesus is saying here. That's always been the heart of God. It's not just to have our lives express that we believe certain things and that we're committed to certain kingdom of God principles, but that we are connected first and foremost to Jesus in a devoted relationship to him. And often we rightly in the church talk about biblical love and we're very careful to say, you know what though? Biblical love is about action. It's not about feelings or emotions. It's not about sentimentality. Love is a verb and God showed love for us and that he died for us. And so we sometimes equate love as a sentiment or as a deep emotion with kind of like an immature kind of love and biblical love is like the dutiful, I, I love people. Sometimes I have to grit my teeth and do it, but like I love it, love is a verb, I'm doing the right thing. And there's a good element of that. I think there's a lot of truth there, but this is the scripture that counters that narrative. That Jesus is actually saying devotion of the heart, sentimentality, whatever you want to call it, 
emotional vulnerability with and before God is essential. God doesn't want just a merely faithful church where there's no connection with him. He wants their life as a church to come out of real devotion and connection to him. Passion, zeal is critical and Jesus says is essential for what it means to be a witness to who I am and my purposes in the world. Now, I don't know how many people here can relate to the situation that the Ephesian church is in, but I can. And Jesus says in verse 5, consider how you have fallen or remember the heights from which you've fallen. And it's an active imperative, meaning continually do it. Consider that season of your life where you had proto-agape for God. And now think about where you are now. And think about the gap there. Because Jesus sees it as a fall. Now we might say, well, they came to faith and they were super on fire and that kind of dwindled and stuff. But look, they started Bible studies, they started reaching out, they started getting boom, boom, boom. But Jesus actually sees their trajectory as a church as a downward movement. You've fallen. But Jesus, I've really grown rock solid in a lot of these areas. I hear you, you totally have. But in the process, you have forsaken either intentionally or unintentionally, prioritization with me. And he says, repent. That's the strongest biblical language you can get, and it means to turn around. It means you're on a path going in the wrong direction. You have to change paths and go in a different direction. Change your thinking, change your um, actions, change your trajectory, change your goalposts. Now, again, think about that. We are pretty much at 90%. Jesus, I'll even concede maybe our hearts have gotten a little cold and mechanical, but like, that's more like a tweak. It's not like a repent, turn around. It's more like a, hey, just something to be aware of, something to work on. Jesus says, repent, or I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. He says, repent and do the things you did at first. I don't know what all the things that you did when you were first in that intense, devoted, proto-agape season of your life with Jesus. But I made a list of stuff that I did and it was pretty, it was pretty sobering to see the heights to which I had fallen. I was super hungry for God's word. It wasn't an inconvenience for me to get into the word. Prayer was unhurried and it was often very intense. Church was a highlight of my week. I looked and leaped at opportunities to serve in order to express my love for Jesus. When I committed a sin, even something that other people might consider a fairly meager one, I was very quick to own it and to confess it and to try and put things in, in place to turn away from it. I gave generously to the church and to other ministries, maybe I would even say recklessly, I gave recklessly to God. I sought out Christian friends who I could have real deep spiritual conversations with, who were growing and I could be inspired by them and they could inspire and challenge me. I prioritized those relationships. I was hungry to grow and become like Jesus. I looked for opportunities to share my faith with other people. The entire agenda of my life was your will be done, your kingdom come. I didn't have 
sort of this vision for what my life needed to be moving through my 20s and 30s and 40s and into retirement and beyond. I held all those things very loosely and I just said, God, this was what I think would be cool, but I want to do your will. I want to do what you call me to do. Give me the faith and the courage to follow through on it. And I know some of the things that have transpired in my life that has led me to forsake that heart devotion with Jesus at different times in my life and even recently. And I know things can happen. Life gets complex. We start making small decision points that build over weeks and months. Events happen. Hardships are faced. Suffering and loss is absorbed. So I don't know what has transpired in your life that maybe has led you to forsake or to dismiss to sideline that first love, to quit on it, to neglect it. But it behooves me as a pastor to say that this morning, the Spirit, through the Word of God, is warning us as a church and each of us individually to consider and repent and do. To consider what life was like when there were no barriers between my love and devotion to Jesus. And if you don't have a phase like that in your life, to even have the courage and say, have I even really entered into a born-again relationship with Jesus? Or did I just kind of adopt Christian moralism along the way? And then to repent of that. Because while growing in the goodness and kindness of God is very important, that's not the same. Just being a good and nice person isn't the same thing as being a Christian with a heart relationship with Jesus. We are being warned to remember our first love. We're being warned to repent of mechanical, passionless Christianity. And we're being warned to do the things that we did when our lives revealed a first love devotion to Jesus. I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to pray out of Ephesians 3 where Paul prays for the Ephesians that they may be rooted and founded in love. And I really encourage you to take time today and this week to do exactly that, to consider or remember the gap between where your heart is at with God now versus where it was and then to, to name that and to say that's not okay. I need to repent of that and to make a list of one, two, 20 things that you did at first that has sort of, there's been, been a lot of slippage on. And to commit to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want that proto-agape back. I want to honor you as my Lord and Savior in that. Let's pray. God, I pray through these words in the third chapter of Ephesians. I pray that this church may have their roots and foundation in love so that we, with all of God's people here in Nelson and Belong, may have the power to understand how broad and long, how high and deep is your love. Yes, that we may come to know your love, although it can never be fully known, 
so that we may be completely filled with the very nature of God. I'm now going to invite you to stand, and I'll send you out with the benediction. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant,